Today's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast is a special episode because we have seen so many quarter three results coming in and the uh, changes at Orsted. We thought we'd put together the special episode. So this is uh, unique. There is a lot going on at Siemens and energy and Siemens and Gamesa, and there seems to be a rift between the two companies. And Orsted is shuffling the deck chairs a little bit. The CFO and COO are out and they're bringing interim people into those slots. Um, but we do feel like Orsted is going to be heading in the right direction. It's just going to take a little bit of time to recover. So in this episode, we talk to all those things. We also talk about Vestas having a really great quarter and Nordic's doing fairly well for themselves. So there's some good news on the wind turbine OEM front. So stay tuned. There's a lot ahead. Siemens Energy has provisionally secured about 15 billion euros uh, for financing uh, various projects. The German government has agreed to provide about 7.5 billion euros of that in guarantees uh, of, of the total of 15 billion that's headed towards Siemens Energy. Uh, it's a weird breakdown how this happens, Phil. So banks are providing about 12 billion euros. The government is backing the banks for about seven and a half billion of that. Uh, Siemens, the mothership, is providing about two billion euros through the sale of a joint venture shares to Siemens Energy. Uh, Siemens Energy is also putting up a three billion dollar first loss tranche. So there's a, obviously a couple of players in the middle of this. Uh, there's going to be some restrictions on Siemens Energy where the management uh, does not get dividends or or bonuses during this guarantee period. This is probably good news for Siemens Energy, but it doesn't really bode well going forward, right? It just seems like there's going to be more tough times to, ahead. Yeah, actually, it's it's probably better than you think, Alan, because this this provides investors confidence. Um, you know, it it brings some closure and some certainty to what was kind of a, an open issue. Um, the government, it's important to also note, the government in Germany is not actually putting up any actual cash at this point. Just backing. Yeah, it's a backstop. Uh, so similar to what some financial institutions and, and other companies that were quote-unquote too big to fail in, in the U.S. going back to the, you know, the Lehman Brothers collapse and, and all that in, in 2008, 2009. Um, so... You've got a situation where it's it's a move that provides investors confidence. They were, you know, Siemens Energy and Siemens Gamesa kind of came out and said, well, we don't actually need the cash per se anyway. Um, we What we need are, um, it's a mechanism to be able to provide the customers who are demanding the backstop uh, a way to, to achieve that because of um, Siemens Energy's uh, financial results and reporting earlier this year, they had their credit rating lowered, which precluded the banks from wanting to be able to to provide any kind of a, a backstop absent this uh, government intervention. So again, I think this is in general a good thing and provides them with a, a glimmer of hope and a, and a path forward. But overall, keep in mind what we talked about over the course of several weeks on on the show before. You have a scenario now where 
the company either has to sell off assets to bolster their cash. They're not selling any, you know, new product uh, and and new projects. They're talking about building a whole brand new wind turbine, which is at least a 18 month to two year endeavor. Um, so, you know, at, at this stage, they've either got to invest their way out of this or they've got to sell assets uh, and asset strip their way out of it. So this looks like the government got them to agree and got Siemens AG, the parent company, to also agree to kind of invest their way out of it, um, which is probably the better, well, it's certainly the safer path for the employees of the company and, you know, helps protect jobs and, and you know, lots of other things, provides investors confidence, et cetera, et cetera. So generally, I see this as a good thing. I think one thing uh, for listeners, viewers of the show right now, it's it's November 14th tonight. So we're also looking at the, the financial calendar for Siemens Energy saying November 15th, which is tomorrow when we're recording this, is when they're going to release their uh, fiscal year 20 or, or Q4 uh, financial reports for this year. So press conference, analyst conference, all of that is going to happen in the next 12 hours to 18 hours as we record this right now. So... This the details of what we're saying, uh, some ideas about what they're actually going to do or how, how this money is going to help them in the future, whether how they're going to invest, what they're going to do to climb out of this hole. Uh, some of those questions may be answered in the general the general news here in the next 12 to 14 hours. And uh, another news on Siemens, they decided to not go forward with the blade plant in Virginia. So I think if you start connecting the dots here, Siemens Energy is hoarding cash and rightly so they're not going to expend any cash on a factory where they don't have defined output and there's a lot of concern down in spain at the moment with the unions about the gamesa division and there's if you read the spanish press there's a lot of uh, going back and forth between what they're calling siemens and gamesa uh, like they're treating like there's two separate entities instead of one combined company there seems to be a, a big disconnect at the moment there's a lot of moving pieces at the moment. And yeah, Joel, you're right. When the financial numbers come out tomorrow and the plan, I assume we're going to get a plan, then a lot will change for sure. Plus they're not they're not selling turbines either, right? The 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 onshore turbines, they essentially stop selling them for the time being. Yeah, I mean financial guidance is one part of a of, you know releasing quarterly results, of course, but uh, the guidance that we're really looking for is like, what's the qualitative approach that you're doing here? Like, where, where are you going? What are your plans? And as far as, I mean, we see, we see, we can watch, we can watch all the things happen out in the world and the moves they're making, but nobody has come forward and said, boom, all right, guys, we know we're in trouble. This is the plan going forward. And, and I would expect to see actually a little bit more detail on, on, the issues that they're having with the turbines that we know, I mean, at the four and a half or five billion euro uh, right down there, I think we're going to see a little bit more. I hope to see a little bit more detail on what those exact problems are and how they're going to tackle them tomorrow during that investor call. Uh, and going back to companies that are having issues at the moment, Orsted CFO and COO stepped down. Uh, and Mads Nipper is saying they needed uh, some new capabilities among challenging times, essentially. Uh, obviously, Orsted scrapped the Ocean Wind 1 and 2 projects off the coast of New Jersey, and they're planning on taking about $5.6 billion in losses. Uh, so there is a lot of reshuffling happening. Now, they have put a couple of people into those positions temporarily as interims, 
and are still sticking with their financial guidance at the moment, in, in, including uh, uh, dividends. But boy, oh boy, uh, Orsted is also in in a mode of trying to protect their assets at the moment, and, and I think rightly so, right? But you know, the weird thing is, you know, all this started with Ocean Wind One and Two. It really did. And it's cascaded into a much bigger problem. Do you think that these heads are rolling a little bit based on some of the uh, reports we were listening? Like last week, we talked about this, the New Jersey governor saying like, oh, they don't know what they're doing and this and that. But if you really look into that, okay, that's one person's statement and opinion. But when you look into it, they're like saying these hundred, you know, this $300 million loss with a hundred million guarantee and stuff like just weeks before they ended up losing it and rescinding their path forward. So like, ooh, that's like a hard thing to stomach if you're the board from, from Orson. That could be why this happened. But Phil, I don't think that happened, right? There's a lot of discussion in the industry of whether that $100 million was actually deposited in New Jersey. There's some discussion of, of that was on its way, but wasn't done. And that maybe Orsted cut that off before the money was deposited. Are you hearing the same thing? Yes, and it also seems like uh, Orsted's claiming that their board of directors never really ratified that agreement to be able to provide that deposit, uh, which is the legal claim that and and legal standing that Orsted has to be able to say that you know if that money hasn't already been sent and already been committed, they're they're not going to send it. Um, so this is going to end up being decided by courts, probably uh, absent calmer heads, which is almost never the way things like this get resolved. Um, <laughs> that say, you know what, come back to the table. We are willing to renegotiate. We are willing to work with you in a collaborative fashion. I think this is, you know, uh, an American state, local, federal government saying, you know what, Europeans, you were the ones to come in and invest in, you know, all these Boehm lease auctions. But at the end of the day, I think we want some more American blood in here building these projects. So go back to Europe. Um, I, it's just, that's the feeling I get from some of this. Yeah. We talked about that when these auctions went and we were looking at, remember when we looked at the California auction, Alan, we watched it live. We were watching it, watching it. It's like, there is not one company in here that is American owned. It was the closest was, was, was Invenergy, but Invenergy is actually 51 plus percent owned by the Canadian pension fund. So they're technically a Canadian company, but it was all of these auctions. There's, there's nobody from the U S involved in most of them. Well, who's going to do it? I, I still go back to who's going to do it. Alan, it's interesting, too, because uh, in this past week, Dominion Energy in Virginia came out and said, because they've gotten approval now for the coastal Virginia offshore wind uh, kind of phase one, their 2.6 gigawatt um, phase of, of this project. And they're, you know, with a, with a preposterously expensive budget of $9.8 billion for a 2.6 gigawatt project, they're saying, hey, we don't have any financial problems, but that's because they baked in all these potential, you know, increases because of inflation or whatever else. It was already kind of baked into their budget. So now they look like geniuses because they don't have anything to renegotiate. Plus, they are the power off taker, so they don't have a problem there. Um, it's it's just the situation where, you know, in New York and New Jersey, nobody wanted to play ball. You know, if New Jersey hadn't held up uh, these these t tax credits and tax breaks that were supposed to go to Orsted in the first place, if there was more certainty provided about um, you know everything, uh, then these projects would have had the opportunity to move forward and probably should have. You know, Ocean Wind One was already supposed to be under construction. 
uh, right now as we speak. And it, it never, you know, it never happened because they didn't get all the development and, and permitting approved. And we talked about this also last week on the show that, you know, Orsted said, oh, well, it wasn't really New Jersey's fault, but I think that's just them being a little polite. And I'll say it's New Jersey's fault because I kind of feel like what else was it supposed to be? You know, we've said repeatedly that if you have something like inflation and you have to raise uh, electricity rates to pay for, you know, natural gas or, or some other type of, of electricity based on, you know, alternative, uh, you know, brown power or whatever you get, you don't see people running through the streets screaming with their hair on fire that, you know, oh my God, my rates are going up. I mean, people complain about it, of course, uh, anytime the rates go up, but you don't see the same kind of reaction, visceral reaction. And I don't know why offshore wind has been like vilified at this point um, into this, this, you know, national uh, evil thing. It's the same thing as any other wind project, though. It's it, it's the you right now, Phil, are having a fantastic technical conversation with us. The majority of the of the United States doesn't give a shit about the technical side of things. They care about it's a political argument. It's the same thing, right? I'm in northern Wisconsin right now, and I have regularly have conversations with people about uh, the future of uh, electric vehicles versus internal combustion engines. And th it, there's no technical conversation to be had. It's a political conversation. Ah, get them damn things out of here. Blah, 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 blah. It's this big government agenda and green this and green that. It's garbage. Like, it's not, that's not a technical conversation about why things, a pragmatic look at it. It's political. And that's what the problem is with offshore wind. It has purely political um, in reason when you have a conversation about it. Well, New Jersey returned the $300 million, if they have it, back to Orsted. Or will the DOE put pressure on the state of New Jersey to to provide that money back? Because that's their only move to heal some of this wound. If they don't, I think the other non-U.S. players in offshore wind are going to be really, really scared to dip their toe into the waters there, right? Because there's just too much damage being done. You're going to burn this marketplace for a good five to 10 years. Potentially, but two comments on that. One is, if you know anything about New Jersey, they ain't giving the money back. Number two, if if Orsted signed better contracts in the first place, which is kind of, I think, part of what happened with their COO and CFO, the investors were the ones that pressured them to step down. You know, ultimately, they were they were given an opportunity to leave without being fired. The, but at the end of the day, it's the investors. I mean, if you if we go back to again the the Orsted investor call from last week, the investors were completely clueless. I mean, we just talked about this with Siemens. Uh, you know, there was the investor call was basically Orsted for twenty minutes, basically said a list of like facts and here's what's going on. We're pulling out of the projects, impairments and write downs, etc. They didn't provide any meaningful roadmap for okay well what comes next other than now we know a week later they're canceling projects in norway that they can't afford to to participate in they're you know they're pulling back from all these kind of pioneer frontier markets where they they wanted to be you know i mean they're they're reevaluating uh, uh south korea at this point they're reevaluating projects in europe um, the only things that seem to be continuing to move forward are obviously operational projects that they've already got throughout Europe and um, Taiwan. 
which is a, a great market for them, but it's because they can move forward in those kind of markets where there is certainty. If, if governments, and this isn't just a New Jersey or a New York or a U.S. thing, but if governments aren't going to provide certainty, I mean, we go back to that comment you just made about Siemens also canceling their, their factory in Virginia. If you're not going to provide people certainty, you're not going to get them to invest. They need to know that if they're going to invest uh, a billion dollars today, it's going to turn into $2 billion three years from now. Okay, that's the kind of certainty that they need to be able to plow that kind of money into building a project, setting up a factory, creating jobs, etc. Is Mad Snipper in the hot seat? Yes, but it seems like if they wanted to get rid of him, Joel, they they already would have. Um, you know, the the word coming out of Denmark is that the investors are still willing to stick by him at this point. But if this gets any worse, um, then he might not survive it. I don't know if that's going to be the outcome here, right? I know there's, on the behalf of the shareholders, there's a tendency to keep the leadership in place, the, the top leadership in place, because they feel like they're the best people to undo what has been done, right? When they bring somebody else in, uh, it's going to take them six months to a year to figure out what's all happened and then to implement whatever change they're going to, to, to do. Keeping Mads Nipper there is the best way to get out of this hole as quickly as you can. You may do something to him a year from now, but right now I think he stays. Some continuity and someone who knows the organization, knows the people, knows the players. Uh, someone that can, if there's a roadmap that's laid out, someone that can drive it. Yeah. I, I think the only thing you may hear over the next couple of months is they, they've defined a successor and they're going to bring that person in to, to be the right-hand person off from NADS and from Mads and off they go. But Boy, right now, it seems like the best move is to to keep him in place and to to get out of this hole. Otherwise, you know, it could get a lot worse. Investors returned to profitability in Q3 with revenue growth of 11% year over year to 4.4 billion euros, driven by higher turbine pricing and double-digit service growth. So the service business is really successful for Vestas at the moment. Uh, order intake more than double to four and a half gigawatts driven by some offshore orders and increased onshore activity in the United States and Europe. Uh, the average uh, selling price increased to a, just a little over a million euros per megawatt. Uh, so they're getting they're able to ask a little bit more for each turbine. And uh, looking at some of the, the, the challenges ahead and where they're, where they're going to be putting their influence, um, Henrik Anderson, who's the head of Vestas talked about the different marketplaces, and he, he said Australia is a great marketplace, U.S. is a great marketplace, and he plans to be traveling there in Q4 to see customers. So that means usually there's going to be some signings taking place. You don't send the CEO somewhere without him signing a document. And Canada is starting to look a little more positive because Canada has been quiet for four, five, six years at least, and Vestas thought, oh, there seems to be more activity happening in Canada, and maybe we'll take a detour up into Canada whether we're in the U.S. That, that's my interpretation, what was being said there. So there's some good numbers from Vestas, uh, unlike what's happening at Siemens. So it, I guess it really um, has been a good fortune for Vestas just to kind of stay put and keep selling turbines. You know, swinging back to your comment on them swinging or going to Canada, possibly, I do know that a lot of the installations that have been going into Canada have been Siemens turbines. So if Siemens turbines have been getting installed in Canada, now there's going to be a little bit of a market gap there. So Vesta's smart to take the tour north while they're over here in the in the North America. But in the meantime, they're 
you know, the fact that they're, I mean, everybody's suffering, let's put it that way. Um, Vestas is just suffering less because they've got a stable product portfolio that, you know, has been based on, you know, proven technology and an evolution of, of a proven design. Um, you know, they've got gigawatts and gigawatts of orders for uh, all the, you know, pre-existing, the two megawatt, three megawatt, and four megawatt platforms. And now with the, you know, six megawatt uh, technology, they're, they're starting to get, they don't have, you know, 10 gigawatts plus of orders, but um, they're, they're starting to get some, some traction. Um, they even actually just recently signed the first uh, formal deal for uh, the seven megawatt platform in Germany. Uh, it's not a very big project, but it's, um, you know, it's a, a good kickoff. Um, and what they're, I think, looking forward to in the U.S. is confirmation and firming up of some offshore orders um, that were kind of pre-announced and until, you know, the, the way Vestas operates until the order is actually firm. They don't kind of formally announce it or formally confirm it um, publicly. But Australia is also an interesting market to pay attention to because um, they are actually part of um, a number of projects down there where they are expecting something that could be, you know, 20 to 30 gigawatts worth of orders. Um, not all at once, but uh, they've got the, um, the Asian um, hub that they're, I think it's in Western Australia, I want to say. I wish Rosemary was here to confirm it for us. Um, but uh, the the... You know, there's a number of projects that they're involved in down there that are also uh, trying to to look at hydrogen production. Um, they're going to co-locate solar with some of these projects. But you, I mean, you're literally talking about um, you know some of these these large you know six seven megawatt turbines um, with literally thousands, if not close to tens of thousands of units um, that that could eventually be installed. So they're absolutely taking markets like Australia seriously. You know, one of the things to touch on here too, and they in their statement, revenue grew by eleven percent year over year this quarter to four point four billion, driven by higher turbine pricing. And this one, double digit service growth. I do know that when they're selling turbines, they're signing up as many AOM contracts as they call them. AOM three thousand, four thousand, five thousand, all the way to we did see one not too long ago that was a thirty year agreement. I think it was up in Finland, and that was a Vesta service contract. So I think they're, and, and what they're doing a lot, so if you don't know this model that much, Vestas does have a lot of their own people. But when they get to a certain point where they can't basically fulfill all of their service agreements, they will supplement that with ISPs. So that's, that's good for Vestas to have the service growth, but it's also good for the whole industry when you're talking revenue growth and jobs for people because there is a lot of ISPs that will backfill some of those service positions as well, whether it's blades or... Uh, you know, up tower, oil changes, this kind of thing. Like all of the people that we know out in the industry, a lot of them have nice uh, big MSAs with Vestas and are, are supporting them through that as well. Over at Nordex, they're having a good year also. Nordex received orders for 365 wind turbines, totaling 2.2 gigawatts in Q3, up from 277 turbines last year. Uh, the average selling price, and there's different ways to measure this, Bill, as you well know, but it roughly is 850 thousand euros per megawatt, which is much less much less than what Vestas is getting for their turbines. Uh, orders received from eleven countries. That's good. A broad market base. Uh, the largest markets are in Turkey, Chile, Germany, and Canada. 
of all places, right? So Canada is an active wind turbine market right now, just like Vesta's pointed out. Uh, so there is some momentum at Nordex. And even though the average selling price is less than uh, what Vestas is able to get, Nordex is just entering into different markets, right, Phil? I mean, that's, that's where the pricing difference comes about is the, 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 the price to get in the door in some of these places is a little bit lower. Yeah, absolutely, Alan. So if you if you look at like China, for instance, the average turbine selling price per megawatt is you know something around like four hundred thousand, a little less than four hundred thousand dollars per megawatt. Um, this is eight hundred and fifty thousand euro per megawatt versus one million euro per megawatt that Vestas is talking about. So it, yes, it it basically depends on the markets that you're talking about going into. Couple of things come to to mind about Nordex, though. One is the fact that they're also targeting Canada uh, plays into this whole idea that you know if Siemens isn't going to be fulfilling some of the orders for the you know five megawatt uh, platform up there, Nordex has a, a proven turbine platform, the one forty nine and the one sixty three um, that could uh, that could also step in um, and. You know, so they're they're targeting markets where uh, they're they're actually getting a, a fairly good profitability. Um, you know, again, going back to this a little bit, Turkey is a market where because of the uh, the currency devaluation that you've seen over the past few years um, between the the Turkish lira and the euro, for instance, or the dollar. Um, you know, I'm I'm not surprised that they're getting prices that are on average a little lower. Um, the one other comment, however, that I'll make is based on markets that are actually publishing annual energy production data, we've actually at Intel Store have started looking at turbine price versus megawatt hours produced. Now, this is basically a metric like if you're looking at, I don't know, an, an electric vehicle or something else, you know, if you can go a thousand miles on something that costs like $5,000 you know, is that better than something that costs $5,000, but it only goes 400 miles? And this is kind of the equivalency there. Nordex is having to lower their turbine price to basically get an equivalent price per megawatt hour that's being produced to the bigger companies. GE and Vestas are kind of leading the market in this um, with products that are extremely efficient. Nordex has had a little bit of a gap there. Um, and so in order for them to actually make orders, they've had to lower their price in a way that, um, you know, also kind of helps compel some of the customers to, to take a Nordex turbine, which they might not otherwise do. Uh, you know, another thing not to be missed here, we've talked about Canada a few times. Canada in their budget 2023 passed their own version of the ITC credits. So there's a 30% tax credit in Canada right now as well. So then there is some you know, uh, red seal trades, to, you know, uh, things to qualify to get, you know, more jobs and things up there. So they've put their own version of some tax credits in play to get them up there. So I would imagine anybody that is, has carte blanche in a business development role or sales role at these OEMs is going to be taking some trips to Canada to sell turbines. But isn't the issue with Nordex, the support that what I'm hearing from different parts of the world is yeah, they're having a hard time on the service side, and and a lot of self maintaining is taking place because Nordex can't keep up with all the the 
the turbine problems, which are normal, and, and this is not anything with the design. It's just the, just the average uh, maintenance on these, some of these turbines. They just don't have the people to support it at the moment, which is a drawback, right? I mean, that's if you're going to make a decision between a Nordex turbine and, a say, a Vestas turbine, you, you see the different levels of service and you see the different performance numbers. It, it, I guess it forces Nordex into a lower price. It seems like they could rapidly increase their price if they had a little bit better service offerings. Because that seems to be where all the operators want to be, is they want to have a good service contract. If by the sheer quantity that Vestas has sold over the last 12 months, it's indicative of where the market is headed. You know, me, like I play more in the ISP world. That's, that's, my, that's my people. That's who I know in the industry. So when you talk to them, most all of them here in the U.S., I'm going to speak of, U.S. and North America, they're chasing towards, I want to get that MSA with Vestas. I want to get that MSA with Siemens. I want to get that MSA with GE. Nobody says, I can't wait to get that MSA with Nordex. Uh, and, and that might be, you know, in part and due to the rates they want to pay for help and these different kinds of things. Right. But that's uh, that's that's just reality of what's going on in the marketplace when you're when you're talking with their colleagues. Although similar to what we talk about with supply chain and kind of volume discounts for for uh, certain components, it's a similar type of effect with uh, service providers. You know, if if the you know, companies like GE Investus have partnerships already with some of the best independent service providers, and they're locked into this kind of master agreement. Um, it could potentially preclude them from providing service to other OEMs, which may be a deliberate strategy on on their part to to try and kind of lock up the best the the best people and the best companies. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Cool.